we are picking up our series that we've been in, in 1 Peter, called Sojourners, Faith in Exile. We, we, we dropped it for a few weeks over Easter as we were looking at different aspects of who Jesus is to us. He's our Savior, He's our Healer, He's our Sanctifier, and He's our coming King. Uh, but this week, we're picking back up in chapter 4 of First Peter, and I have really enjoyed preaching, and actually we've been talking through some of these ideas after our service as well, but walking through this book in Scripture together. And Peter's big message in, this, in his first letter is that we are exiles, spiritual exiles. The people he's writing to are literal exiles as well. They're living in a place that's not their own home. But actually, Peter's bigger point is that we are spiritual exiles. Our home is not here on earth. Our home is in heaven. That's where we have our citizenship. And our primary allegiance is to Jesus. He's the king. He's my king. I hope he's your king as well. We're spiritual exiles. And so because earth is not our home, we are sojourners, aliens. We look and talk and sound and walk differently than those around us. Actually, we walk and look and talk and sound like our king, like Jesus. And so Peter picks up with one of his, he continues with one of his big themes here in chapter four, that of suffering, that of suffering. And he has, if you've been with us over the last bunch of months, and you, if you, just to remind you, if you want to catch up on previous sermons, you can do that on our website. But he picks up on this theme of suffering, and it's a pretty radical view of suffering. It's a pretty radical view. Because essentially he's saying that suffering isn't to be avoided. Actually, the secret is that you can't avoid suffering. Everybody across the entire face of the planet suffers, experiences pain, loss, difficulty in some way or another. Can't be avoided. But we spend a lot of our time trying to avoid it. Peter is saying, actually... You don't need to avoid it because actually in order to be like Jesus, to walk and talk and think like our king, we have to suffer. We need to embrace that. That's what he says in chapter 2 and verse 21, that Jesus left us an example so that we could follow in his footsteps, the path of suffering, the the path of picking up and carrying our cross. And actually, as he digs more into it, he, he, he tells us that actually it's possible to experience the good life in the midst of suffering because suffering has a way of drawing us close to Jesus and it's in Jesus only that we find true joy, true significance, true fulfillment, true security. All of those deep longings of the human heart We find those in Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. And I might add, especially in the midst of suffering. And so Paul picks up this, sorry, not Paul, Peter. Peter picks up this morning in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. Renska, thank you for reading the text for us. And he has this really big, important command. Arm yourselves, pick up weapons, something to defend yourself with, and be ready arm yourselves. And that yourselves, sometimes in our Western mindset, we read those you and yourselves in a singular, thinking about this is applicable to me. But 
I'm American, in the South, in the States, we say y'all, you all. And that's what he's saying, y'all arm yourselves. Because it's about us together as believers. We need to be ready, not just individually, but together, corporately. And so he says, arm yourselves. I don't know if any of you have ever played paintball before. I've played it a couple of times. And the, the first time you play, I did this. I think many people, the first time they play, you walk out into the middle of the train. You've got your paintball gun, and it's filled with little round balls of paint. And, uh, and you, you walk out, and you suddenly realize very quickly that you're not adequately prepared. Because you keep getting hit, and it stings, it hurts, leaves little round bruises all over you. And you quickly figure out that actually I need to wear layers and stick bits of cardboard down, down on my arms to protect. And eventually you get to the point where maybe you buy some, some protection, some armor that you could put on as well. And so what Peter is saying here is, is that life is a little bit like a paintball game, and some of you are walking out in shorts and a t-shirt. You're not adequately, adequately prepared. You need to arm yourselves. Be ready. Because suffering is going to happen. Suffering's going to happen. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking, he says in verse 1. What way of thinking is that? And so he begins in verse 4, in chapter 4 and verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, because Jesus suffered, and he's, Peter's laid out a lot of how Jesus suffered. He suffered unjustly. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten in return. Because Jesus suffered in the flesh, we also ought to expect that we will suffer in the flesh when we live righteous lives. When we live righteous lives lives. We ought to expect it. Not an expectation that leads to self-pity, that leads to sort of an Eeyore outlook on life. Woe is me. Well, I should have known this is what always happens when you try and do the right thing. No, no, no. This is an expectation that leads to being prepared. Peter says in chapter 1 that we need to gird our minds. It's the picture of, of the soldier who wraps his, his cloak, his clothes up around him so that he can run quickly and move and be agile. Be ready. Gird your mind. He says in chapter 5 as well that we have an adversary, the devil, who's roaming around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And Peter tells us to stand firm in our faith. There's this overarching theme in the book of 1 Peter that life is not a walk in the park. A life of faith is not a walk in the park. It's a battlefield, and that battle starts in our minds. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, we ought to be prepared, us as well, that we will suffer in the flesh. Because the reality is, the world around us has great pull and influence on us. And if we're not careful, if we're not armed and ready, suffering, persecution, difficulty, it, it, can, it can drive us away from Jesus rather than causing us to draw near to him. So Peter gives us ammunition this morning. Ammunition for our spiritual arsenal. Three things that suffering well accomplishes. And if we want to spend our time here on earth, we need to learn to suffer well, to suffer like Jesus did. 
So three things. Suffering well, firstly, purifies the believer, you and I. Suffering well purifies the believer. Suffering well, secondly, proclaims our true allegiance to the world around us. And thirdly, suffering well trusts God's promises. It trusts God's promises. Three Ps. It purifies, it proclaims, and trusts his promises. So what does Peter say about the first one? Suffering well purifies the believer. He continues in verse 1 and he says this, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The first thing that suffering well does in purifying us is that it stops sin. You see how he, said, he says that? Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Suffering somehow causes sin to stop in our lives. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that he says when he talks about stopping sin, he doesn't say you should try and stop that. He says, no, put it to death. Kill it. Because it's painful and it has to be put to death or otherwise it grows back again. Suffering leads to sin stopping. It doesn't mean that we'll be perfect in this life like Jesus was perfect after we suffered for a bit. But suffering has this mysterious, marvelous way God uses it in order to help us to see sin that we were previously blind to. And oftentimes he brings us through suffering to the end of ourselves so that we stop trying to accomplish things, doing things in our own strength and say, Lord, I can't do this anymore. I need you. I need you. Two particular ways that God uses suffering in our lives, two particular kinds of suffering that Peter deals a lot with. The first is that, you know, because of Jesus in our lives, we, we suffer when we choose to walk differently from the world. It's one of our core values at City Church. We are countercultural because Jesus was countercultural. And so we walk differently from the world and it lashes out against us and we experience persecution. Sometimes physical, but sometimes emotional and spiritual as well. And actually, that violence, which is meant to do us harm, which was meant for evil against us, actually serves God's purposes in our lives to make us more like Jesus. But sometimes because of Jesus in our lives, we also begin to deny sinful fleshly desires in our lives to kill sin. And actually, that's a process of suffering as well. That's suffering for righteousness sake as well. In my own life, I don't know about you, but in my own life, the two places where God has done the most work in this way is through marriage and through parenting. Because for me, those two areas or where I came face to face with my own fleshly desires, and I had to decide, am I going to do this the Lord's way and deny myself and think first about others, my wife, my children, or am I going to keep thinking about myself and satisfying my own desires first? And praise be to God that he used those things in my life to help me to stop thinking about myself so much. He does the same thing in other areas of our lives. Perhaps 
perhaps there's some, some, some folks who are single, who, who aren't married with us this morning. He uses that in your life, just like he uses the particular suffering of marriage or of parenting in your life. He can use that suffering in terms of being single as well to draw you closer to him, to help you identify particular areas of sin that he wants to change as you deny your fleshly desires. C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God has an incredible way of using suffering, not only to stop sin, but actually, if you notice what Peter says as he continues, to start holiness as well. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says that we, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We know what human passions are. We know their motto. Follow your dreams. Follow your heart. Listen to your intuition. You do you. Find yourself. Be yourself. Actualize yourself. That's, those, those are the mottos of human passions and desires. But actually, through suffering, as sin stops, holiness starts. And we start using our time to accomplish the will of God. And what is the will of God for your life and for mine? Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. His will for your life and for my life is that he wants to make us look like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. It's the process by which we begin to walk and talk and act and think like Jesus as we're filled with his spirit, as we keep in step with his spirit who's in us. That is the will of God. He wants to transform us into the image of Jesus. And he uses all things... All things, good, bad, ugly, for the good of those who love them in order to do that. Christian, as you're watching and listening this morning, have you seen that principle at work in your life that God uses suffering to stop sin and to start holiness in you? Christ-likeness. Is, is he currently speaking through you? What are you? Where are you suffering? Sometimes we suffer across the whole of life, but sometimes we suffer in different pockets, different areas of our lives. Where are you suffering right now in your life for the sake of righteousness? And what's he saying to you? What's he saying to you? Sometimes we, we get caught up in just living and we forget to ask that question when we're in the midst of suffering. Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you trying to put your finger on? In my life. Listen to his voice. Friend, if you're watching with us, and you, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're interested in spiritual things, you're joining us this morning, can I suggest to you that there isn't a person on this planet who's figured out how to make suffering stop definitively and live the perfect life of heaven on earth. It doesn't exist. It's a fairy tale. It never will exist. Not until Jesus comes back. And actually, the key is to suffer for the right kinds of things. 
When you suffer for righteousness sake, you get to know Jesus and it's in him that we can find security and significance and peace and joy and fulfillment and meaning. Only in him. It's not worth trying to get rid of suffering. That doesn't, it's not possible. But in Jesus, it has meaning, deep meaning. Your soul will find that satisfaction it's been longing for. Look into Jesus. The second thing that Peter gives us, the second, uh, the second ammunition that, that Peter gives us about suffering well is that suffering well proclaims our true allegiance to the watching world. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You see, suffering well proclaims our true allegiance and that it, it begins to change how we think about sin. Peter says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Sometimes, friends, we romanticize past times in our lives when we were living in sin. In our heart of hearts, we wouldn't tell anybody this, but we remember back Maybe we fantasize about being back in those days when actually we remember the pleasure of sin. And we wouldn't mind going back there for just a second. It's sort of like saying, you know, you're happily married, but actually in your loft, you've got a box. And in that box are old love letters from different lovers. And maybe you don't go and look at it all the time, but you remember they're there. You remember some of the words, some of the phrases, and it, it, it does something to you. It's like the people of Israel in the desert saying, oh, we want to go back to Egypt. Friends, we need to not romanticize those times of sin in our lives because they were wasted time, Peter says. He says that was enough. That time suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Have you arrived at the place in your life where you're ready to stop wasting time on sin? Have you arrived at the, time in your, at the place in your life where you're ready to stop wasting time on sin? That list of sins that Peter, he gives us, they're meant to help us turn the spotlight on our own lives. Do you feel a tinge of shame as you read some of those, as you heard some of those? Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries. If you do, if you feel a tinge of shame, that's good. Sometimes we get desensitized to sin because of the culture we live in, because of our proximity to sin. Ask him this week to make you sensitive to sin again. We, we, need our, our, we need the way we think about sin to change. We don't want to romanticize it because sin is purposeless. It satisfies for a time, but ultimately it's a waste. It's a waste. It changes how we think about sin. We see it for what it is, but it also changes how we participate in sin. Actually, I should say non-participation. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, with respect to this, the Gentiles are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You see, the Gentiles 
like we were before we began to follow Jesus. They love the darkness more than they love the light. That's what Jesus says to, to, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. They love the darkness more than light. There's something about sin that loves darkness. Because it covers our actions. We think we can do the things that we want to do, satisfy our own desires, and nobody will see. And when someone comes in and says, I'm not going to participate, I'm not going to join you, it's signaling that actually someone is watching, someone knows. It's shining a light into that darkness. Someone is watching. And the problem is that even though they're doing things they're satisfying those fleshly desires, those human passions. They have eternity in their hearts, like every human being does. That's what the teacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We have eternity in our hearts. We have guilty consciences because we know we weren't made for that. So we love darkness. And the gut reaction of a guilty conscience that's been caught out, caught in the light, as it were, is to lash out, is to malign. That's what Peter says. They're surprised that you don't join them. They don't run in the same direction they're running. And they lash out. They malign you. And Peter uses that, that phrase, we don't join them in that flood of debauchery. They lash out. They're drowning in sin. And if you've ever, if you've, if you've ever had lifeguard training, you know that you always approach a drowning person from behind because they're in a panic. They're not aware. They're just trying to keep their head above water. And so even though you're coming to rescue them, they push you down underwater and they take you down with them in their panic. They're a flood of debauchery. And Peter says, arm yourselves. Don't join them. Don't join them. They want to pull you down. They want you to join them, but don't. And actually, they lash out, but the conflict provides an opportunity. The conflict provides an opportunity. Sometimes as Christians, we avoid conflict. We avoid conflict about our faith. But oftentimes, that conflict provides an opportunity. Peter tells us two ways that we should react and expect to act in the midst of that. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they malign you, ultimately they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When they malign you, keep blessing. Don't return evil for evil. Don't seek vengeance. Don't retreat. Don't run away. But continue to bless. Continue to engage them because you never know. They might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. They might know Jesus through you. The second thing that he says, the second very practical application is found in chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, but he says, don't fear them. Don't fear the Gentiles when they malign you. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be prepared to have an answer. And friends, the easiest answer is not the high-minded, theological, apologetic answer. The, the most straightforward, 
piercing answer you can give sometimes is to share your own story, what the Lord has done for you. What he's done for you, how you've experienced the risen Lord Jesus Christ in your own life, through your suffering even. Suffering well changes how we participate in sin. Friend, I read something this last week that said this, let your intuition guide you. You are what you've been searching for. You are what you've been searching for. Have you ever experienced the emptiness of trying to manufacture within yourself to find in yourself joy and peace, meaning, significance, security? Have you come, have you exhausted yourself looking for those things inside yourself? Because they can't be found ultimately. It's not possible. You aren't what you're looking for. Jesus is who you are looking for. And if you this morning feel like you're drowning in that flood of, of debauchery, of sin, that flood of, of trying to satisfy your own desires, can I suggest to you that Jesus is there and he's got a life ring and he's saying, come to me, I'll give you rest. I can satisfy your soul. I can satisfy your soul. The third thing, the last thing that Peter says, that the last thing that he gives us to defend ourselves that we need to arm our thinking with is this. Suffering well trusts God's promises. Peter says this, when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery, they malign you. And verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Suffering well trusts God's promises about who he is. He is the judge. He's the judge. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. Everybody's going to give account to him. It's a pretty big scope, the living and the dead. That's every person ever will give an account to him. And so we trust when we suffer well, like Jesus did, we are trusting what he says about himself, that he is not only sovereign, but that he's wise to make the right decisions and good as well. He's sovereign, wise, and good. Those three together when we think about him as the judge. That he's going to do justice and it will be the right justice as well. This puts our role really in perspective here. Other people, those who malign us, are not the enemy. They are not the enemy. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our, our, our struggle, our fight, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our fight is not against other people. And so our role is to trust what Jesus did back in chapter 2 and verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so we can keep living righteous lives, keep living in a way that brings God glory and trust God with the outcome that he's going to judge justly in this life 
and in the next. We trust God's promises, but we also trust what can save us. Peter says in verse 6, This is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel is the only thing that can save us. The good news about Jesus, he's the one that can save us. On the day when we get into heaven, or or, uh, the day we die, rather, the only thing that's going to matter is whether we know Jesus and whether he knows us. That's the only thing that matters. And so Peter here is thinking about not just those he's, he's writing to, his readers, but also those who have already died trusting in Jesus. Perhaps even those who have been martyred for their faith. And Peter's saying, listen, we don't need to fear death anymore because it has no sting. Jesus has conquered it through his resurrection. He's sitting on his throne in heaven and all the powers of darkness, everything is under his foot. He's Lord over all. And so we can live the right kind of life because we know who he is. We've trusted the gospel and he's got us in the palm of his hand. But it's also actually the gospel is also the good news, not just for us, but it's also for good news for those who malign us, those who don't know Jesus yet, because it's the only thing, once again, the only thing, Christ alone is the only thing that can save them on that day when they appear before the judgment seat of God to give an account. And so our role, friends, is really clear. Our role is really clear. We are to walk like Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. That's God's will for our lives. And we are to proclaim the good news, the gospel about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. That's our role. Not to make a Christian government or a Christian society. If we're really reaching people for Jesus, we ought to expect to see some of that. But that's not our primary role. Our primary role is to preach Jesus and to walk like him. Christian, are you living a life that raises questions? Are you living a life that raises questions, that that takes some some faith-filled risks by saying, I need to do, I need to live like Jesus in this way. It's going to be awkward and I might get maligned, but I need to do this. Not in every part of your life, but in some part of your life. Or are you crippled by fear? about what others might say, what they might do to you. Can I encourage yourself, can I encourage you this morning to continue entrusting yourself to him who judges justly? Friend, if you've been following along with us this morning, can I encourage you with this thought? At the end of the day, when we go into the next life, the only thing that will matter is not how good you were, how many good things you've done, how much money you earned, how successful you were, but whether or not you knew Jesus and whether or not he knows you. Because we'll arrive before God and he's going to say, why should I let you into my heaven? And the only right answer is, because I know Jesus. And Jesus is going to be standing right there and he's going to go, yep, I know Bob or Jim or Sally. And that's the only thing that matters. Do you know Jesus this morning? If you don't, would you please reach out? Send us a message on Facebook. Send us an email on our website. 
because we would love to be part of introducing you to him. Mm-hmm.